The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, going to look at verses 38 through, uh, 38 through 42 this morning. Verses 38 through verse 42 of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, before we dive in, to the Word of God this morning, I, I need to have a talk with some of you about your road rage. Um, maybe it's just me, and I know you've seen the videos at least of YouTube or wherever, where sometimes when you're on the road and somebody cuts in front of you, or you're on the interstate, I know it happened many a time, somebody seems like you, you're going 75, 80, and somebody's got to be going 90 and comes and cuts in front of you, and they didn't have their blinker on, and they're slamming right in between you and another car. And I don't know if it's just me, but at times I, I feel like I wish I could pull the police maneuver where you go up and clip their bumper, and you, you turn turn to the right and clip them, and they go diving off into the ditch. Maybe that's just me struggling with that. I don't know. But you've seen the videos. I know where people get so worked up on the road that they'll pull off the road and start fighting, literally fist fighting together, and even some that have pulled out guns and shot one another because of this rage that overtakes them as they feel as if they have been insulted. They feel as if an injustice has been committed against them, whether that's somebody cutting in front of you or pulling out in front of you or whatever it is, and there is something within me, and if you're honest, within you two, that we want to avenge, don't we? We want to set the record right. We want to let that guy know just how wrong they were and just how right we are. It's been a few, a number of months back, but I, I came up to an intersection and, of course, I came to a full stop and carefully looked both directions. I by no means rolled through the stop sign. I would never do that. And as I was rolling through the stop sign, I did not realize that right there in that A-pillar on the left side, there was a vehicle coming that I totally did not see because I wasn't being careful and full stop and really looking and moving my head to make sure. And I did. I pulled right out in front of this guy. And he didn't, he, he had enough time. He didn't come close to hitting me, but he, he, I think, sped up and went flying around me. He wasn't even going the same speed. He sped up. And as he was, as he was coming around me, he informed me that I was number one. And... Uh, I, I waved back at him with all my fingers, not just one finger, and it was kind of like, I'm sorry, man, that was my bad, I didn't see you, totally my mistake. But you've all been there where that, that rage of some sort, which is really a, a desire for retaliation because you've been wronged, rears up within your heart and you want to you wanna act out on it. Maybe it's not, maybe you're a very passive driver and it's not driving and you've got to write calmness as you drive. Maybe it's when, when somebody you know is lying about you. Ever had that happen? Somebody's saying stuff about you that's not true and there's just something in you that wants to retaliate. Even in a right way, you want justice, you want to set the record right. Ever been slandered and your, your job as an occupation, you know, as a promotion might be coming open and, and somebody's saying something about you that's not true because they want the position and all, all that sort of stuff happens. A number of times in our lives, you will have occasions where people genuinely wrong you. They're doing wrong. It's wicked, it's evil, and it ought not to be so. And when that happens, because of our own pride and righteousness, even self-righteousness, we want to avenge ourselves. We want to set the record right. We want punishment to come and to come quickly upon those who are doing wrong to us. 
Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus said a pretty striking word to the group of people that had gathered to hear this Sermon on the Mount. He told them, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the people of that day and age that everyone would think if anybody's going to make it, it's going to be the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes know the Bible inside and out. The Pharisees are the ones that live so devout, so devoted, so religious to such a strict understanding of the law and what they did and what they didn't do that that, that the common person would have thought if anybody's going to make it, it's going to be the scribes and the Pharisees. And I can only imagine their shock when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness if you're really going to make it into the kingdom of God. Everybody says, what do you mean, Jesus? How in the world can our righteousness exceed theirs? And Jesus, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, he goes on to describe what he means. And what he reveals is that the Pharisees had this external way of understanding the law that that only applied to the external actions and never to the inward heart. That they thought it was okay and, and, and that they were okay with God if they could just create this list of do's and don'ts and abide by them, which they did very strictly. And Jesus is saying, no, what God requires is more than this, just this external appearance of righteousness. This righteousness that looks good in the eyes of everybody else, that God actually sees your heart. And that the law of God, even the commands given in the Old Testament, when understood rightly, not only condemn us because of our actions, they actually condemn us too because of the wickedness of our heart. The the internal wicked motivations and selfish desires of the heart itself. Jesus later would describe the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs that on the outside looked all nice and beautiful, whitewashed sparkling clean, but on the inside were filled with corruption and dead corpses and bones. That though they had this outward appearance of righteousness internally, they were still sinners. They were still corrupt. They were still wicked. And God required a righteousness that was greater than the external. And Jesus is going to show us that only comes through Him. It comes through what He'll do for us upon that cross that we'll look back upon as we move forward in the Gospel of Matthew. It's all pointing us to that that moment where he gives his life a ransom for sinners, where you and I as sinners can have an internal righteousness that's not of our own works, it's of Jesus and his righteousness, what he did for us. All, all that's pointing, all this is pointing to that truth. And so what Jesus does in, in these verses that we've looked at and what we'll look at even this morning is he uses this formula, you have heard it said of old, and he quotes an Old Testament command. And it was an Old Testament command that the Pharisees either either wrongly interpreted or partially interpreted. They only applied it to the external, and they never really got to the heart of the issue. And Jesus says, but I say unto you, and then he gets to the heart of the issue. He applies it rightly as it was intended to apply not just to the external, but to the internal to show us none of us measure up. None are righteous, no, not one. And so we've covered the subjects that he has covered so far as we've looked to murder and hate within the heart, adultery and lusting after a woman being the same as committing adultery in your heart, of marriage and divorce, of, of honesty and integrity within uh, our, our words and what we say and in the taking of oaths. And this morning now we're, we're going to look to the subject of retaliation, uh, personal retaliation and vengeance. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 38, we begin reading, follow along as I read aloud. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not 
to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The command that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament is found in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 24. And it reads, Verse, a little bit in verse 23 and then through verse 25, if you're being real technical, Matthew 21, or Exodus 21, you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And every man in the room said, Amen. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what we want naturally, inwardly, to, to bring justice and to bring judgment, to bring vengeance, to bring retaliation. Jesus says, however, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, don't oppose the evil person. What does Jesus mean by this? The first thing we need to understand is the misinterpretation that the Pharisees had, had, so, had so taught and, and made prevalent within that day and age regarding this Old Testament command. It's not that the command itself was wrong from God. It's not that Jesus is now saying, well, yeah, God wrote that in the Old Testament, but we need to scratch that out and I've got a new game plan here. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is saying is that the scribes and the Pharisees in particular were misinterpreting and misapplying what God wrote in Exodus chapter 21. You say, how, how did they misapply it and misinterpret it? You go back and you read Exodus 21, what you will find in the context of where this verse is written God is giving instruction to the judges of Israel, the rulers of Israel, on how they were to execute justice within the land. This, the, the, the nation of Israel in that day and age under the law, they were a theocracy. They were ruled by even the, the leaders that were even the church leaders under the law of God that was given. There was a combination between government and church, so to speak, in that day and age under the Old Testament law. And within the law, it, it, there's given instruction regarding religious practice and ceremony and sacrifice. But a lot of the Old Testament law also includes civil uh, issues of civil government of how a government is in, to institute rule and order within a society. And so when you're reading Exodus chapter 21, what you find in the context is this verse is given basically to the governing authorities as an issue of government oversight over the people of Israel. This is not given to the individual. Now what were the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees took this right verse that a government is to punish wrongdoing, and they were... The punishment was to be commensurate with the crime is really, it's a limitation given here that, that the punishment that the government was to give for a, an offense should never be an unjust, undue punishment. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You shouldn't require an eye for a tooth or two hands for a toe. Or That's what's being implied here. It's a limitation on the punishment. We would say in our day and age, the punishment ought to fit the crime that it would be unjust and unfair to bring a grave, great punishment upon a small offense, and, and vice versa, a larger offense shouldn't have a little little punishment. This is a, an issue of, of civil, uh, civil authority. 
of the judges and their execution rightly as a governing body over people, over punishing wrongdoing and commending good doing. The Pharisees took it and they applied what was meant for that realm of authority, and they applied it to the individual personal realm, to where though this was for a judge and a judge's oversight over cases and execution of punishment, they took it personally and individually, and they would even teach it was an obligation. If you're really following the Word of God, you will give an eye for an eye, and you will take a tooth for a tooth, and you will take a burn for a burn and a stripe for a stripe. And so they misapplied uh, a verse that had to do with civil authority to personal authority, and then they also made what was a limitation, an obligation to be followed. They were mishandling the Word of God. They were twisting and misapplying the Word of God really to justify what is in your heart and my heart when somebody pulls out in front of us. They want to set set them straight. They want to vindicate and validate themselves and and bring uh, vengeance upon the person that's in the wrong, that's committed an offense against them personally and individually. They found a biblical basis to do so based upon this passage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus steps up and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, tell you not to resist an evil person. We must be careful that we do not take this verse in the New Testament and do the very same thing that the Pharisees did with that verse in the Old Testament. Pull it out of its context and apply it in ways that it was never intended to be applied. And so before we dive into the rest of this passage, I want to tell you, first of all, in in prefacing what we're about to dive into, what I don't think Jesus is commanding of us here, that some people, I believe, wrongly take just this line, this one phrase out of context, to imply. I do not believe Jesus is forbidding here self-defense. Some take this line and they say, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek uh, to him also. And they uh, apply it to say it'd be wrong for you to ever defend yourself in any way, shape, or form. That we ought to be completely pacifist in everything, no matter what's being done, no matter what the threat is. And I look to this and say, if you read the context, in no way, shape, or form is Jesus saying this. And Jesus and other passages, even the disciples, carried a sword, self-defense. In the Old Testament, it commends the life uh, life, and the value of life and the defense of innocent life acting. And Jesus here is not saying whoever comes at you with a sword, turn the other cheek. He's saying whoever slaps you. This wasn't an assault of, of a physical harm. A slap, a backhand, as we'll talk about in a moment, was not an attack of physical harm, a life-threatening attack. This is a, a matter of insult of personal humiliation and insult, not a matter of my life is in danger, or even more so, my wife and children's life is in danger. Jesus is not forbidding self-defense here. I have no objection to tell you right now, if you break into my house and you threaten the life of my wife or children, I am a firearm owner, and I will feel totally pure in my conscience before God to take a life and the protection of innocent life whether that be my wife or children or others. And I believe I would lay down my head afterwards with a pure conscience before God in that act if that act ever came about. I don't think Jesus is forbidding self-defense here. This is dealing with a different issue, not self-defense. 
A second misunderstanding that people have regarding this word of Jesus is that we are never ever to stand up against anything evil at all. Because Jesus says, I don't oppose an evil person. And so we should just be Switzerland in all issues and, and for all things and all reasonings, just try to remain peaceful and never speak out against wrongdoing or stand up for right. And if you know your Bible, you'd say that's foolishness. You read everywhere else and we're commanded to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. We are We look to the life of Jesus and we see Jesus opposed the Pharisees on a number of occasions. We we look to him even turning the the tables over within the temple for goodness sake in opposition to the corruption that was going on there. We look to the New Testament and it tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. And so we're called to resistance. We're called to stand for what is right. We're called to wage a good spiritual warfare, to fight the good fight of faith. And so I don't think Jesus at all is saying here that we are never to stand for what is right and we can never resist evil. No, that's not not in context what the Lord Jesus is commanding. A third misunderstanding that we'll cover is one regarding people taking this and especially verse 40 to say it's wrong to ever ever desire a punishment for any crime that's committed. And so if someone were to break the law and steal from you, or even worse, murder a loved one, that they would say Jesus here would be teaching that, that punishment should never be enacted if you're really following the word of Jesus, that if you really forgive them, you should never desire the death penalty or even lifelong imprisonment. True forgiveness would imply a removal of any consequence. And I say, hogwash, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Um, Jesus is given, God has given the government that authority to execute justice. And God does not tell governing authorities to overlook wrongdoing or to forgive wrongdoing. Uh, Governing authorities have laws and punishments for uh, criminal offenses in order that goodness may be uh, commended, in order that wrongdoing may be put to an end, that wrongdoing may be punished. It's not only for that individual to not be able to commit that crime again, but also an example to others. If you do these things, these are the consequences that will follow. And so that is a civil authority. That is not an individual authority to enact the punishment as a vigilante in those cases and scenarios. God's entrusted that, ordained that to governing authorities. We individually don't execute that justice, and we individually can forgive and can extend love and grace to that person while also recognizing you you did that crime and the governing authorities have declared that crime has this punishment. It is right and fitting that the punishment match the crime and that that be carried forth. And true forgiveness does not entail a removal of earthly consequence due to actions. All of that prefacing the misinterpretations, which leads us to this question, what is the right interpretation? What is Jesus saying here that we're not to resist an evil person? It's a good thing that this verse doesn't come to us in a vacuum, isolated from everything else that surrounds it. Whenever you read your Bible, never read a verse in isolation pulled out from everything that surrounds it because everything that surrounds it is giving us the right meaning and the right application of what's written therein. And so it's good to read this verse. You know, let me word it this way. Wouldn't it be helpful if Jesus just gave us a couple examples of what he was talking about when he says not to oppose an evil person? Wouldn't it be very convenient if he followed that statement up with four examples, four illustrations of what he means by those words, and lo and behold, it just so happens that's exactly what we have. It gives us an example of turning the other cheek. It gives us an illustration, an example of giving someone not only our tunic, but also our cloak. 
He gives an example of going the extra mile. He gives an example of grace and generosity for those who are in need. And so I want us to look to each one of these, and I hope and pray they will help lead you to see what I believe Jesus is saying here, summed up simply in this. We as believers, we who are Christ followers, we who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, who are living for things that are above and not things of the earth, here's what Jesus is commanding of us, that we are not to retaliate against a personal insult or an attack, but to show kindness instead. So in the realm of personal relationship, not, not our lives being threatened or the lives of our loved ones or the life even of just an innocent bystander being threatened, but in the context of personal relationships, when you were insulted or you were wronged or you were even harmed in a way that isn't life-threatening, that just involves things that are earthly and temporary like money and possessions like we'll talk about in just a moment in these examples, that we rightly ought to lay that offense before the Lord and not avenge ourselves. We rightly ought to lay that down for Christ's sake and extend kindness to the person instead of arrogant vengeance and retaliation. Notice in his first illustration, we are called to be willing to absorb wrongs that are committed against us. Be willing to absorb wrongs that are committed against you. First illustration he gives is of turning the other cheek when somebody slaps you on your right cheek. I'm going to have JF come up here and I'm going to demonstrate this. Come up here and I'm going to demonstrate a right to do. Now think about it for a moment. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek. Now, I'm left-handed, so I might come across this way, but most people are right-handed in that day and age. Almost everybody was because it was disgraceful to be left-handed, lo and behold. But, but a right cheek slap would be a backhander. Not even an open hand forward slap. This is not an issue of a physical attack and self-defense. This is an issue of great personal insult. If I were to go up to one of you and just go, even in our culture, that is a great insult, is it not? That's a humiliating thing and a belittling thing where I am belittling you in front of people that are watching and showing you just how better I am than you. Some of you used to watch the good old, good old cartoons and not these weird cartoons that are on TV nowadays, but you can remember Bugs Bunny. What did he do? He'd take that white glove off and he'd pop Yosemite Sam across the face. It wasn't meant to inflict harm. It was meant to inflict insult. Insult. We don't backhand people in the face very much in our culture. But you know what we do? We get hurt and offended and then we vent on Facebook. <laughs> you know, that's how we backhand people upside the face, is we slander them on Facebook, or if you're in denominational life, there's all sorts of websites and forums where, where people just tell untruths and take things out of context. And, and the reality is, it, it, every one of us has probably had a wrong word spoken about at some point during our lives. And the more that you're on a stage, the worse it can be at times. People say things that aren't true. People slander. People lie. And there's something within me and there's something within you that wants to set the record right. Whether that's venting it on Facebook or calling them out in person. And the reality of what Jesus is calling us to here applies directly to those instances where we feel like we need to justify or avenge ourselves. We need to vindicate ourselves. When somebody slaps you in the face, when they make a, a 
Facebook post that's not true or when they slander you behind your back or when they wrong you in whatever shape or form that it is. Jesus says here, you're not to attack in return. You're actually to turn the other cheek. You're actually to absorb that insult and that wrong and to, to turn it and turn, not, not an act in vengeance towards them to pay them back or one-up them, but to just absorb it. Turn the other cheek and get ready for it to come again in a way where you're just absorbing it. And you say, how in the world can you do this? You really can't in and of yourself. It's of Christ, and it's in Christ, and it's Christ in us that can lead a person to have that sort of patience and grace and humility in that situation. It, it requires great humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through eight. Write these two passages down because these are key. If you're thinking as a believer of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, how can I, how can I ever really turn the other cheek? Well, 1 Philippians 2, 5 and 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You've got to have the mind of Christ. You've got to have the humility of Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus is the utmost example of humility in the face of being wronged and being falsely accused and being mocked and being slandered. He endured the crucifixion itself when at any moment he could have rightly called down thousands of angels to come into this thing and annihilate humanity. He went through even to the death of a cross. That is our example. And you say, how did he have such humility? Well, Peter gives us a clue in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 21 through 23. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23. I can tell you as I have come to understand this great truth, it has helped me tremendously to not act like a fool and try to defend myself in situations where we normally act and make things worse, but to simply what? Entrust vengeance to God. To entrust the wrong that's been committed to you to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 begins, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself in his ways and even the offense that was occurring to the Father who judges righteously. Think of Romans chapter 13, which I think is a, I think Paul likely had the words of Jesus in his mind when he wrote these words. Repay, I'm sorry, Romans 12 rather, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good in the sight of all men. If it's at all possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. And he says, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You realize that God will do a far better job of vindicating you and of avenging you on that day of judgment or even throughout life. I've seen it even as life 
carries on. God sometimes, even in the here and now, validates and vindicates the truth and exalts those who live in humble obedience sacrificially before him and brings to light the truth of the offense of a person who may, in the moment prior to that, look like they're the ones in the good, they're the ones doing the right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. There is a call here to to not respond with retaliation when we're attacked, when we're wronged, but to simply entrust it to the Lord and turn the other cheek. That God will vindicate. God will bring judgment. It's appointed if a man wants to die and after this the judgment. Every person will stand before God and give an account of every idle word spoken. God will do a much better job of judging than you and I ever will in our lives. And so Jesus says, if you're going to follow after me, you're not going to be people that are filled with vengeance filled with vindicating yourself and your righteousness before everyone as the Pharisees were. No, you're going to be people of kindness. And even when you're wronged, even when you're slandered and insulted and belittled and humiliated, you're going to step back up and you're going to turn the other cheek. How can you do that? Only Christ does. And it points us to this truth that the Gospel is worth more than your pride. The gospel, meaning the love of God for us and His redemption that He's accomplished for us, that message of His death, burial, and resurrection that we've come to believe that's our salvation, that we're to share with others, that we're to tell others about. You realize the gospel is worth more than your pride? When your pride is insulted, you should simply lay your pride down and even be mocked and humiliated, turning the other cheek, rather than acting in arrogance and in pride and bringing an offense to the gospel. The gospel's worth more. It's worth laying your pride down for. It's worth enduring uh, an insult or a mockery or a wrong that's been committed to you. Turn the other cheek. Secondly, quickly, we must be willing to sacrifice to keep peace. It says, if somebody sues you over your tunic, give them, give them your cloak also. Now, in this day and age, you, average person likely only owned, only owned one pair of clothes, maybe two at most. And so they would wear undergarments, they'd wear a, a shirt, and then they'd wear an outer cloak, an outer coat. Now, under the Old Testament law, if a person were sued and lost everything, they actually were not permitted to, to take the cloak. They had to have some sort of covering. And they also, for safety even, needed warmth with a coat. And so the law forbid a person to be sued and their cloak to be taken if it was their last one. The shirt could be taken, however. So Jesus in that context says, if somebody comes and sues you for your shirt, give them your cloak also. It was an extreme word that Jesus spoke here. What is he telling us? He's telling us that even our comforts in this life are worth laying down for the gospel's sake. That that we ought to be willing to sacrifice much, everything even, in order to elevate the love of God, in order to share the love of God with others. That if a person, whether we're wrong in it or not, comes after us in a way that we can work to pacify, that we can work even if it costs us to bring a good into it. We're to give them our coat also if we, we must, if we can, in order that we may elevate Christ, that we may elevate the love of God. The gospel is worth more than your comforts. We are called to endure personal loss for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our witness before a lost and dying world. He keeps on going and he says, Anybody compels you to go a mile, to go two miles. We must be willing to do more than we have to do. 
Now, the context historically to bring you up to understanding on what Jesus is saying here, any soldier within the Roman Empire anywhere, not only in Israel, but anywhere that the Roman Empire existed, that Roman soldier was authorized to look at any common person, carry my baggage, carry my equipment for one mile. That was what was allotted under the Roman law. One mile, any person was obligated to carry the, the equipment of a soldier to give him rest on his journey. No matter what you were doing, no matter where you were going, no matter what your life involved, that soldier had the authority to say, one mile, carry it now, go. And you were required to carry it and go. However, when you reached the end of that mile, and it was a Roman mile, a little bit shorter than our, our English mile, when you reach that final step and you bet your money that every person carrying that weight, especially if you can imagine the interruption it would cause and one schedule and what one was doing, they were counting their steps. And when they reached that step that equaled a mile, they could drop it. And no matter what that soldier said, they could go, see you, Jack, I'm not coming back. And they could hit the road. If you can imagine an Israelite and their animosity towards the Gentiles and especially towards the Roman Empire, they had... They had overtaken Israel. They were getting heavily taxed. They were the authority over them. They were in bondage. They hated the Roman soldiers. And so they were obligated to carry for a mile the, the equipment, but none would ever fathom doing another mile willingly. And Jesus says, I tell you, if anybody calls on you, compels you, commands you to go a mile, go the extra mile. Go the second mile. So say, what, Jesus? imagine the shock at this with their hatred of the Roman soldiers and viewing anyone that helped a Roman soldier even as a traitor. You want me to do what? To carry that another mile that I'm not required to? Don't you know my rights? It's within my right that once I've reached that mile, I'm done. My legal obligation has been fulfilled and I can go and hit the road and he's got to carry it. Jesus says no. The gospel, Jesus is worth more than your rights. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Sometimes it's right for us to lay down our rights for the gospel's sake. Sometimes it's the call of God for us to endure injustice and even mile beyond what is obligated of us or surrender a right that is even ours. In, in, for the sake of our witness, for the sake of the testimony of the love of God being manifested to a lot of people that don't know it through us. Now, there's a, a place to fight for the rights, absolutely. I'm not saying that you should never fight for the rights that we thankfully have been given within our Bill of Rights and the blessing of what it is to live in this country. Don't hear me wrong, but hear me right. And what I am saying, there are times in our individual person, uh, personal lives often where we are not to live under the rights that we have, rightly that we have, but we're to surrender those and to go an extra mile when it's not required of us in order that we may give a good testimony for the Lord. The gospel is worth more than your rights. Notice lastly and fourthly, be willing to give all that you have with grace and generosity. Jesus says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow. But when somebody comes to you in legitimate need, and there is discernment that must be exercised, especially in our day and age with alcohol addiction and drug addiction, sometimes it's not best to hand 20 bucks to somebody begging for money who's going to go turn around and buy alcohol with it. I understand all of that, but don't let that abuse of generosity um, prevent you from acting in true cases of need. And there are a lot of needs, people truly in need. We are commanded to be gracious, to give to those who are in need, and to lend freely to those who need to borrow. 
we of all people on planet Earth ought to be the most generous and the most gracious, those who have experienced love and generosity of God Himself. John put it this way in 1 John 3.17, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, the gospel is worth more than your possessions. We have a treasure that is worth more than the treasures of this earth. We have the, the keys to the gates of heaven. We have the gospel itself. We have that message of God's love that's able to redeem and bring one from dark into lightness. It is, it is worth more than our money. And if we can give our money to help bring one to see that light, to see that truth, we should gladly lay it down. Gladly give it away. Gladly lend it to those who need it. God is calling us here to not oppose the evil one. To not fight. To not be in opposition to the evil one being the one who comes against us in a personal insult, a personal attack, a personal wrong that's being committed. But we are to turn the other cheek. We are to give our coats with our shirts. We are to go the extra mile. We are to be gracious and generous with all that we have. Why? Why? Because the gospel is worth it. You can word it this way, because Jesus is worth it. He who gave His life for us, we're to, we're to give our life for Him, to lay it down and to endure whatever it is that might bring shame or dishonor to His name, to our testimony. That's what Jesus commands of us here. And so we'll close with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he writes these words. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I become as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. He says, to the weak, I have become as weak, that I might win the weak. And he says, I have become all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. For all of us who have come to know the gospel, may we leave here and live in light of it and walk worthy. Here and you don't know the gospel. You never come to Christ and receive freely that salvation that He offers. I beg you, even now as we come to hurry, turn to Him and find Him saved. Heavenly Father, we come to You and ask Your blessing upon the moments we've got remaining that You would be at work in our hearts and in our lives to take Your Word and apply it to our hearts and lives that You would help every believer leave here with these words that you gave to us ingrained in our mind. Lord, you call us to lay down our retaliation and our vengeance, to entrust it to you, to turn the other cheek, to sacrifice, to even give our own coat, to go that extra mile, to be generous, to be gracious. Just like Christ, I pray. Lord, if there be any in here that don't, haven't come to him, they're not saved. I pray even now that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would believe that you would call upon you for salvation.